Well, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and we're actually just about all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be looking today at verses 15 through 20. And while you're finding Matthew 7, let's go to the Lord in prayer for a moment. Our Father, we come to you now. Once again, we have expressed our delight in the gospel. We have been thrilled with the truths of heaven, of beholding our God. And while we long, Lord, to see you face to face, while we long to see our Savior, while we're in this world, we do have the glorious Word of God that does lead us home. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would speak to our hearts today and make us more like our Savior, particularly today as we see the warnings that Jesus gives over and over again in the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. We ask you, Lord, to help us to take those seriously, to heed those warnings that are there for the benefit of the hearer. We pray that today those warnings would be heeded the sobriety and seriousness of our faith would be taken to the highest level. We pray you would be blessed by our listening ears and our eager hearts. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Satan himself was actually the very first false teacher on earth. And you know the story in the Garden of Eden. Satan questioned the word of God and then he added his own Assertion of truth, which in fact was false. He told Eve concerning eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will surely not die. He contradicted the word of God and he did so in a way to have false authority. And because he was so convincing. The woman fell for the false teaching She sinned against God. She and Adam, her husband, brought human sin into creation for the very first time. And ever since that time, all the way through human history, one of the primary tools of evil that Satan has used to deceive the world is a seemingly constant stream of false prophets, false teachers, who present a form of godliness, a version of God's word, but it's deadly spiritual poison meant to bring spiritual destruction. Now in Matthew 7, we've been examining warning signs on hell's highway, as we've called it. Warnings that Jesus gives to those on the broad road of eternal damnation and destruction. And so far, the warning signs we've seen, the warning of hypocrisy, the warning of lovelessness, the warning of easy believism, all warnings of a false salvation experience. Today, we'd like to look at the warning of false teachers. The warning of false teachers. And the main point today is that if someone has a persistent, stubborn determination to follow after false teachers, this is likely indicative of a false salvation experience. They're not attracted to the truth. They're attracted to lies. And so Jesus gives this warning to beware. Matthew 7, verse 15 Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
you will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And so Jesus begins this section immediately with the command, beware, be careful. Be careful of the false prophets, those who claim to recognize God and claim to represent God. And he gives what is a very familiar analogy and it originates with him. He's the one who came up with this. He characterizes them as wolves in sheep's clothing. That they present themselves as followers of Christ, the sheep of his pasture, but in actuality, they're wolves. They're there to devour. They're there to take advantage of the sheep if possible. And Jesus gives basically one sign to look for. He says, you will know them by their fruits. That the good trees produce good fruit and the bad trees produce bad fruit. Now that's a simplification and there are some nuances to that which we'll look at in a little while. But basically, what is the good fruit of the genuine leader of God's people? A prophet or a a shepherd, an elder, a pastor that God has called? Well, the bottom line of this good fruit is basically answered by the question, what kind of people are being produced? What kind of people are being produced by this ministry? Is there a pattern of genuine conversions? Are people under that man's teaching growing in Christ, learning the word of God, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? And are they in turn having a positive impact on those around them? Is the gospel going forth from the students of the word, so to speak, in a way that is undiluted, that is unwatered down, that is true, that is pure, that is holy? It's not really that complex. What kind of people is he producing over time? That's good fruit. But for our purposes, the more pressing question, what's the bad fruit? What's the sign or the signals of a false teacher? It's actually a fairly complex question. And so to answer that question, we want to expand our boundaries beyond this text. It's a broad study. We're going to walk through at a pretty brisk rate here, so it might be easier for you to note the Bible references I'm going to be dealing with. But to just kind of put some categories in our mind, I'm going to give you two categories of the fruit of a false teacher. The first category I'll call the amen category. What does that mean? It means that all who follow Christ will heartily agree with these. We'll just enjoy the reminder, the sober realities of the plethora of lies that are pelting the church, but we'll all be on the same page. That's the amen category of the fruit of a false teacher. Category two is the oh no category. Because it may be subtle and it may be something you've not even considered as being the fruit of false teaching. Now, most definitely we'll be in the amen category for most of our time. So let's do those first. The amen category. We'll all agree on these. And we're just going to go through a number of category or a number of uh, labels here. The first bad fruit we'll call the fruit of misled sheep. The fruit of misled sheep. I want to read to you a bit. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. You don't have to turn to them, but I I want to read to you from Jeremiah 23. 
Jeremiah 23, verses 1 and 2 says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are shepherding my people, you have scattered my flock and banished them and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh. And then later in verse 10, God says, For the land is full of adulterers, for the land mourns because of the curse. The pastures of the wilderness have dried up. Their course also is evil, and their might is not right. In other words, the people are, are, have gone, gone off track. In verse 32, Behold, I am against those who have prophesied lying dreams, declares Yahweh, and who have recounted them and led my people astray by their lying and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them, I did not command them, and they do not furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares Yahweh. Now, why is this so horrific? Because the sheep of God are classified and identified as sheep for a reason. Sheep follow whatever seems the most reasonable at the time. Now, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but I believe that if I ask the question, how many of you have ever come to realize that you have been misled in some area of your Christian faith, I think every one of you would raise your hand. Israel was exiled for her sin. The individuals rightly being held accountable to God. But God blames the shepherds. He blames the leaders. Verse 32, Did not furnish this people the slightest benefit. None. The fruit of misled sheep. Here's another bad fruit. The fruit of lovelessness. The fruit of lovelessness. In another classic passage on shepherding, which I'll just read to you from Ezekiel 34, then the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says Lord Yahweh, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been shepherding themselves. Should not the shepherds shepherd the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You sacrifice the fat sheep without shepherding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, and the diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you searched for the lost, but with strength and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field, and were scattered. My flock wandered throughout all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to seek or search for them. What a picture! This is a picture of God indicting the shepherds, those spiritually responsible for Israel, as completely not caring for God's people at all. That's why he has to say, my flock, my flock. Instead, instead of feeding the sheep, they have shorn the sheep. They use the sheep for their own gain. At his core, A false teacher does not love the people in his charge. He loves what his people can do for him, what his people can do for his little kingdom that he's building. There's another bad fruit. The fruit of convincing false logic. The fruit of convincing false logic. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Did you catch that? Delude you. 
that deceive you with persuasive argument. Similarly, Romans 16, 18, Paul says, Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own stomach, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. What is this smooth, flattering speech? It's speech that makes me the center. And it does so in a logical fashion. What is convincing false logic? Well, let me give you a couple of kind of classic examples. God is love. That's true. God loves you. That's true. Therefore, God isn't concerned about what you're doing or about your failures. He just wants to love you and and welcome you into his family. You see, because God is love and because God loves you, God gets you. He understands you. Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? Some of you are going, I kind of like that, actually. No, no, that's wrong. That's false logic. That's man-centered logic. How about this one? The Holy Spirit is like a, a perfect gentleman. He'll never force himself on you. And so when you're ready, you can ask for the Holy Spirit, and now you'll be a full gospel Christian. That's false logic at about a thousand different levels I don't have time to go into. How about this one? God has called us to be salt and light in the world. Therefore, this upcoming election is the most important one ever. We've heard that, right? That's false logic. What makes it false logic? Because it makes initial sense, but it isn't grounded in a thorough theology based in Scripture. There's another bad fruit. The fruit of shaking your confidence. The fruit of shaking your confidence. We'll talk about this in a bit, but some false teachers will give false confidence to the lost, but others will shake confidence needlessly. Now, to be clear, and I'll just be upfront about this, if you don't know Christ, I want your confidence shaken to the core. I want you terrified of God so that you will repent. But not for the genuinely saved. Let me show you how this was working, and, and I'm going to sort of do a combination of read and tell you the story of 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul, writing to this very young church, says, Now we ask you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul's saying, don't think that that the judgment has come and that you're in the middle of it. He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it has not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And he goes on to describe in, in, in what this is going to be, that the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, he must come first. There must be a rebellion. And he reminds them, don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. He says, you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. By the way, who is he who restrains the man of lawlessness? It is the Holy Spirit through the church of Jesus Christ present on the earth. The Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. How? The rapture of the church. Now the man of lawlessness comes. And so he's telling the Thessalonians, don't think that you've missed it. Don't think that you're in the midst of judgment. Why would they think that? Two reasons. 
First of all, they would think that because they were under terrible persecution. And the other reason they would think that is because there were preachers saying, the day of the Lord is here or it's already come. And so Paul gives the comfort that first there comes a time when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple. He'll say that later in the chapter. Then comes the return of Christ, the slave of the lawless one. And by the way, if you put it together with the chapter we read earlier this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4, the Christians are taken out of the world before all that. The teacher of the word of God, through the truth, is to give assurance and confidence to God's people, not shake your confidence. A false teacher may try to shake confidence. Why? For the same reason that wicked politicians create problems and then put themselves forward as the solution to the problem that they created. The false teacher shakes your confidence and then says, but if you follow me and my teaching, I'll help you through it. Here's another bad fruit. The fruit of ignorant claims. The fruit of ignorant claims. 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. Paul says, For some straying from these things, he's talking about instructing the body of Christ with a motive of love from the previous verses. For some straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions or ignorant claims. This is the man who says, I don't need to study the word of God or, or I know this or he, or he cites a source as authoritative. MacArthur says this or Calvin says this and that makes it right. Now what's terrifying about that sort of man is that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. That's what makes him dangerous. This is someone who has been placed in leadership or more likely placed himself in leadership without actually having any training at any level with which to rightly handle the Word of God. Here's another bad fruit. The fruit of legalism. The fruit of legalism. One of our classic passages to help us understand this is Paul's explanation of legalism in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. In 1 Timothy 4, 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience, who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be shared in with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Oh, how easy it is to slip into legalism. We're very comfortable there. We're very comfortable. The creating of false standards of righteousness not delineated in Scripture. What's Paul describing here in First Timothy 4? He's describing the asceticists. And I can't spell that word without spell check, so I don't expect you to either. But those who held to asceticism believed that the pleasures of this world, such as marriage and good food, were inherently wrong because they were pleasurable. It's a false gospel. It's legalism. Legalism, I I said a moment ago, we're very comfortable with that. Why are we comfortable with it? Because it takes away the need for discernment, takes away the need for thought, takes away the need for for wisdom, and how comfortable we are with a long list of made-up rules. So 
So what's the difference between wisdom and just legalism? I'll give you an example. Paul commands women in 1 Timothy 2.9 to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modest and self-restraint, modesty and self-restraint rather, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or, or costly clothing. Is this a law against braided hair or jewelry? Some of you ladies are sinking down like, oh no. No, he's pushing back against the worldly tendency that some women in this culture had to braid their hair with their wealth in it my gold and my jewels, to show off. What does that mean? It means that their purpose in that dress was to boast. But before that, he says to be modest. It just means appropriate covering. That's what it means. This is a command of God, but it requires discernment and wisdom and care for those around you. Legalism gives a list of appropriate clothing, what stores you can buy from, what stores you can't, and... Obeying that list is a condition for being right with God. This is false teaching. There's another bad fruit. The fruit of conceited debate. The fruit of conceited debate. In 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, the Apostle Paul says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing but having a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Now, most definitely, there is a place for argumentative preaching. This was called polemical preaching in which you take a stand against something that's false and you do so publicly. There is a place for that. There is a call for that. There is a need for that. But this is speaking of the teacher or the leader who has an appetite for argument, who has a hunger for debate, who loves controversy, who can't discern the level of importance of various issues and either makes mountains out of molehills or he ignores the actual theological mountains in favor of some side issue that's not as consequential. And he leads his people to become angry, to become difficult, to become standoffish, to become unconcerned about others, to become impatient, to become arrogant. There's another bad fruit. The fruit of a disgusting life. The fruit of a disgusting life. Titus 1, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning legalists, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to myths and commandments of men who turn from the truth. He says this, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him. He calls them detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What's he saying? You see a false teacher because what he professes to believe and his life are totally different his life is disgusting his life resembles the world his life does not resemble a man of god much less just a christian 
Peter warns in 2 Peter 3.17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men. Unprincipled is a Greek word which means man without law, lawlessness. They have no sense of a desire to eagerly obey the Lord, to obey God personally. Jude warns in Jude verse 4, that certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What's the contrast to that? Oh, we get this breath of fresh air, this drink of cool water, when the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews thirteen seven to remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of the dead shepherds of the past who were faithful to the end. You know why we love dead shepherds? Because we can see the totality of their life. They didn't fail at the end. They didn't say something so ridiculous on social media or in an interview that it destroyed their reputation at the end. Another bad fruit. And we're still in the amen category. We all agree on these. The fruit of destructive heresy. The fruit of destructive heresy. Second Peter 2, beginning in verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. In other words, they will be held accountable. But what does this mean that they secretly introduce destructive heresies? It means that the church is generally accepting of these things. Last October, we did a a, a conference about the influencers Global Influencers Ministries, this group that uses the church for its own heretical purposes, and they're in churches all over our city. It's a cancer. That is the secret introduction. But what does Peter mean, even denying the master who bought them? Is this an example of someone losing his salvation? Well, that can't be, since the vast preponderance of scripture teaches us the permanence of salvation in christ but they can't be speaking of a genuine believer either a christian is never said to have swift destruction coming the judgment of god coming it simply means at least in part that these are teachers who aren't pagan outsiders it's not some buddhist traping uh, down the aisle here saying hey i'd like to preach a sermon at grace bible church no it's it's someone you wouldn't suspect they're pastors, their elders, their self-appointed leaders who are very churchy, very Christian-y, but not saved. I've had some conversations with some of you as we've gone through Matthew 7 and it's been shocking to you to see that the Lord warns that there are so many people on the broad road that look like Christians. And some of you have even said, this is, this is a whole new concept for me. This is mind-blowing. I, I kind of just feel like anyone who says they're a Christian or goes to church is generally a Christian. And it's, 
It's tempting to think, oh, someone who professes faith in Christ could never turn back like that. That's not reality. I recently received a text from a longtime church member here in our church. He hasn't been here in some years. And he did all the things we did. He went to the men's retreat. He came to the men's group we had years ago. He went to small groups. He asked lots of questions. He received counsel for his marriage, for his kids. He received prayer. He received shepherding. He was part of the body. He has now left his wife. And he writes this in a text, quote, Religion and God is just a type of control designed to keep us in order without asking questions. A sham, a lie, a weapon. That's why I pulled back from all Christians to see things clearly outside the cult. Jesus warned, and he warns. Here's another bad fruit, the fruit of denying the Trinity. The fruit of denying the Trinity. Apostle John says in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Listen, belief in the triune God is not negotiable. This is not an agree-to-disagree situation here. According to Ephesians 1, God the Father chose the elect for salvation. God the Son redeemed the elect in salvation. God the Spirit has sealed the elect in salvation. You might not think this is something to worry about, but frankly, the list of false teachers who deny the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is rather long. I won't go through a whole list, but some of the more famous ones, T.D. Jakes, Denies the Trinity. Stephen Furtick, he denies the Trinity. Right here in our own town, Ron Vietti, uh, he denies the Trinity. And of course, whole pseudo-Christian cults such as Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarianism, Oneness Pentecostals, Worldwide Church of God. Frankly, anti-Trinitarian theology is rampant. It's everywhere. And it comes in many forms, more than I have time to dive into. Suffice to say this, though, There are more professing Christians who don't believe in the Trinity than there are those who do. Well, let's keep this really simple. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Spirit is God. There is one God. There's another bad fruit. The fruit of denying the humanity of Christ. The fruit of denying the humanity of Christ. And you might say, well, we're getting in the theological weeds now. Why why is that important? I'll show you. 2 John verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, some will try to spiritualize Christ away from being fully God, the fully immortal, risen from the dead human being. But why is this so important? This takes away the mediating power of the God-man. Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf to the Father as one of us. Can you grasp that right now Jesus Christ is human? He is like you. And He is before the Father. So beware of any who downplay or put down or flat out deny the humanity of Christ. Well, that's the amen category. We all agree with that and we can close in prayer and all feel indignant together and be happy about that.
But what about the oh no category? Maybe things you've even been fooled by yourself. Maybe things you're being fooled by right now. Those promoting these bad fruits, they might even have the best of intentions and I'm not necessarily going to categorize them as clearly unbelievers. Some may just be misguided or, or, or untrained, but in turn they're misguiding others. Some or many may be unsaved or some may simply be ignorant of basic truths, but at the very least they're acting like false teachers. So let's do a few of these. The bad fruit of emotional manipulation. The fruit of emotional manipulation. In 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7, Paul describes wicked teachers who lead people astray, and in this case, they're targeting women in particular. 2 Timothy 3, 6, For among them are those who enter into households and take captive weak women weighed down with their sins, being led on by various desires, always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth. What, what is this? This is a picture of perhaps a, a, a Christian woman who is very emotional and that's great and that's wonderful. It's the way God made you eager for a genuine connection with God. But what Paul says here, weighed down with sins, theologically untrained, not understanding the gospel at a level that she should and just very innocently yearning for something to hold on to, something that resonates, something that says, oh, I found the Jesus that I really yearn for. It could be the latest fad teaching which creates a false Jesus, a Jesus that doesn't actually exist, a Jesus that exists to soothe my emotions and to make me feel something. And, and these women, according to Paul, grab onto this. Fads that we've dealt with in the past, such as the Jesus Calling fad by Sarah Young, the Gentle and Lowly fad by Dane Ortland, or the Prayer of Jabez back in the 90s. There's always something and there's preachers everywhere on YouTube, on, on every social media, on every outlet possible. These false teachers are constantly, if I could put it this way, repackaging God, remarketing Jesus to fit whatever soothing message they want to sell. I think the easiest way to be careful there is just beware of completely new information. When you read something and you know for a fact no one else has ever said this, he's wrong. There's another bad fruit, the fruit of an altered gospel, the fruit of an altered gospel. And I put this in the oh no category because many of you have believed an altered gospel and didn't know it until you learned the doctrines of grace. This is not an agree to disagree thing. This is not something where we we go to the lowest common denominator and say, as long as we all love Jesus, as long as we all just agree that that salvation is I accept Jesus into my heart. As long as we all agree on that, we're fine. Paul doesn't say it that way. Here's how he says it so nicely in in Galatians 1, 6. He says, I marvel that you are quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some of you, some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, here's the nice part. Let him be accursed. Cursed is the man who twists the gospel. There's no agree to disagree with the gospel. It's why we must be precise. 
There's no compromise on the doctrines of justification and regeneration and repentance and faith. That God is the initiator of salvation. Man is the recipient and the responder. The one who alters the gospel is a false teacher and Paul says, may he be cursed by God. That's pretty strong language. A false gospel offers false assurance and false assurance is the most spiritually dangerous trap a person can fall into. I don't have the exact figures, but I would guess out of all the people in my ministry I have had the privilege of baptizing, eight or nine out of ten of them consistently have believed a false gospel, got baptized as an unsaved person, and then now are being baptized as a saved person. Now, the way I like to say it is you you weren't actually baptized before you got wet in a religious setting because baptism is only for believers. The false teacher promises peace when God is actually threatening to judge. Here's another bad fruit, the fruit of claiming supernatural power. The fruit of claiming supernatural power 1 John 4, beginning in verse 2, John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world hears them. We are from God. The one who knows God hears us. The one who is not from God does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What is this? John is warning the believers, watch out for those who claim their own spiritual power. That they have power of their own. The apostles demonstrated the power of the Spirit of God, but it was for a time, it was for a purpose. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation first spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard. That's the apostles. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Who is this person? This is the self-proclaimed faith healer, the self-appointed fake apostle. By the way, apostles today don't actually exist and they're always self-appointed. Why? Because there's nobody higher than an apostle, so there's nobody to appoint them. Just because somebody sticks a poster up in Starbucks saying, come to the meeting of apostle so-and-so, that doesn't mean he's an apostle. Self-proclaimed power. Why is that in the oh-no category? Because I think we all agree on that. If someone believes that solely by presenting an emotional plea or a begging for someone to come to faith in Christ, if he genuinely believes that through his pleading and his begging, he can affect the salvation of a person, that is belief in your own power. Yes, we beg. Yes, we plead. But it is the Holy Spirit who brings Here's another bad fruit. The fruit of shifting authority. The fruit of shifting authority with great conviction, with great fervor. The Apostle Paul famously tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 20, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. 
turning aside from godless and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. What has been entrusted to Timothy? The truth of the gospel and the singular authority of the word of God. This is why in some of his final words to Timothy, Paul charges him in 2 Timothy 4, Timothy, I charge you, preach the word. Insist on it. And yet the leader in the church may appeal to a different authority, perhaps even in ignorance, but the divine call upon the shepherd of God's people and frankly the divine call upon any Christian who's guiding someone else spiritually is only as divine as it follows the word of God. So why is this in the oh-no category? Because perhaps the guiltiest parties who bear the bad fruit of shifting authority are church leaders, elders, pastors. They may adopt a policy or a certain direction based on a different authority. And it sounds innocent. It may be, for example, the different authority of, well, here's how things are done in the corporate world. And for example, the common phrase, elder board. It might even be in our bylaws, I'm not sure. But I I try to avoid that phrase, and it's not inherently wrong. But where do we get that? We do not get that from the Bible. The Bible does not have an elder board. The Bible has an eldership. What's the difference? An elder board is a decision-making body. An eldership is a shepherding body. Scripture defines elders as shepherds. And elders, I've spoken to enough leadership teams of many different churches. They are notorious for making terrible decisions on behalf of the whole church Because they appeal to a different authority. Instead of being able to ground every single aspect, every single direction in a thoroughly biblical principle and in a thoroughly New Testament saturated understanding. For example, and I'm so thankful for our elders because they get this, they understand this. Our eldership wants to be financially responsible and we, we understand that. But there's not a single precedent anywhere in the New Testament of a local church attempting to build up a ridiculous surplus of cash. Did you know that? What happens to churches that begin to value a ridiculous surplus of cash? The leaders begin to protect the cash instead of protect the honor of Christ. I'm sorry, I take it back. There is one church leader who kept a surplus of cash. His name was Judas. He's the only one. Listen carefully. The very definition of false teaching is making an assertion of something as being true, being authoritative without it being grounded in Scripture. That's false teaching. A belief in my inherent wisdom. There's another bad fruit. The fruit of denying God's redemptive plan. The fruit of denying God's redemptive plan. On Sunday evenings, we've been taking a long look at the millennium with the Bible teaches concerning what we now call premillennialism, the belief that Christ will return bodily and then set up his kingdom on earth. We've mentioned often that our amillennial brothers who either believe the kingdom is happening now on earth or that there's no intermediate kingdom of any kind really. We've mentioned our postmillennial brothers who believe the church will evangelize the world, making the world ready for the return of Christ by essentially seeing the gospel win out over world authorities. And while we have vast differences on timing and on interpretation, all of us have something in common. That the resurrection of the church is yet future and is an actual resurrection. We have that in common and we we revel in that. 
But there's a belief system called preterism that believes that all prophecy has been fulfilled, that Christ has already returned spiritually, invisibly, and that whatever the resurrection is has already happened. Paul warns against this belief. He says in 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, their word will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. No, our hope is in the future resurrection. Now, why is this in the oh no category? Why is that there? There's a more subtle form of preterism that invades the church, even ours at times, if we're not careful, and that is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a form of preterism. It calls people to have faith to live resurrected lives now. In other words, that I'm always healed, I'm always in abundance, and if I'm not in that wonderful state, then there's something wrong with me. This is the lie that Christianity is a means to my personal ends, that being a Christian is defined by God taking away all the bad things in my life and giving me all the good things in my life. It considers nothing of what it means to be crucified with Christ. There's another bad fruit, the fruit of false revelation. The fruit of false revelation. Jeremiah 23, 16, thus says Yahweh of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into vanity. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of Yahweh. Listen carefully. Jude said that the minister of the gospel is to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Revelation 22 warns against adding even one word to the revelation of God in Scripture. And so the spiritual leader who manipulates people by saying, God told me, or God wants me to tell you, or thus saith the Lord, unless he's about to read the Bible aloud. That's a false teacher. Now, why would I say that's made its way into here, into our church? It can be very easy, some of you, to to bring your spiritual baggage with you here and to try to genuinely help someone else and to say, you know, God told me to tell you this. No, he didn't. And the right response is, how do you know? Unless it's, let me open the Bible and read to you. The fruit of false revelation. And I'm going to hammer this last one hard. And I saved this for last on purpose. The fruit of cultural Christianity. The fruit of cultural Christianity. This is the most heinous in the oh no category. Jesus condemned the church in Pergamum for two problems. Revelation 2, 14 and 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. He said, but I have a few things against you that there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. So you have also some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we have two groups here, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. And I want to highlight these for a minute. The, The Nicolaitans, who are they? They taught that you could be saved and yet do whatever you pleased. You could do whatever you want. It's based on the faulty notion that the physical body is evil. Only the the spirit is good. So, So whatever the body does is always covered by the grace of God. 
But quite contrary to this, Paul said in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. That's pretty easy to understand. A little bit more complex and not something we're familiar with because we don't have Balaamites today. We do have people who live like them though. The Balaamites. I have to give you a little background. I want to make sure you get this. What was the teaching of Balaam? That's what Jesus refers to here. The teaching of Balaam is something we find in Numbers 22 through 25. The people of Israel are camped on the plains of Moab. They're beyond the Jordan River, close to Jericho. They're getting ready to invade the land. And it's, this is God's orders. And, and so now the, the Moabite king Balak, he's terrified of the Israelites. He said they cover the face of the earth. There's so many of them. So both the elders of Moab and and Midian come to this self-proclaimed prophet, Balaam. They brought a lot of money on behalf of King Balak to hire Balaam to go curse Israel. It was sort of a -a rent-a-prophet program, I guess. To curse Israel so that Moab could defeat them. But the true and living God spoke to Balaam. He said, you shall not go with them to curse Israel. They are a blessed people. So Balaam told these guys, sorry, can't go with you. So King Balak sent more of the lofty princes of the land to tell Balaam, come, curse this people for me. Well, this time, God told Balaam that if they asked him to go, this time he could go so that God would show his power. But when when Balaam went, God's anger burned against Balaam. Why? Because 2 Peter 2.15 tells us that Balaam had it in his heart to try to make a buck off this situation, to try to gain, to outwardly obey the Lord, but inwardly he was plotting on how to make a a handsome profit from this. And this is when the classic scene happens. Balaam is on his donkey to go meet with King Balak, and the the donkey saw the angel of the Lord armed with a sword, and the, the donkey left the road, ran into a field, and so Balaam beat the donkey, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord again. This time he veered off and, and, and funnily enough, uh, crushed Balaam's foot against a wall. I think that's hilarious. Balaam beats the donkey again. A third time, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord. And this time, the donkey just lays down in the path. And Balaam's there beating the donkey. And Yahweh opened the mouth of the donkey. And it said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, that's the weird part right there. (laughs) Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Then Yahweh opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of Yahweh standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed his head down and prostrated himself to the ground and the angel of Yahweh said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me and the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If it had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let it live. And Balaam said to the angel of Yahweh, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. So now, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. But the angel of Yahweh said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. 
So, he's been warned. He has come face to face with the angel of Yahweh. This is a pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem Jesus Christ. Balaam went on to King Balak with these strict instructions. You will only say what God tells you to say. And so King Balak gets together with Balaam and says, Okay, now it's time. Curse Israel. Balaam clears his throat and proceeds to bless Israel. This upsets Balak. He wants his money's worth here. He gave Balaam a second chance. Same thing happens three times. Finally, Balak sent Balaam away, but Balaam did something. And it's only later revealed in the book of Numbers and more fully revealed in Revelation 2. Numbers 31.16 says, On Balaam's advice, the people of Israel acted treacherously against the Lord. What happened? Well, Balaam outwardly obeyed God, but he pulled Balak aside. Basically said, you want to defeat Israel? You can't do it outwardly with military strength. Numbers 26 tells us that Israel had 600,000 able-bodied military. But you can defeat them inwardly. And the question would have been, how do I do that? Don't fight them invite them. Numbers 25. The people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. In other words, instead of getting ready to fight Israel, Moab came over and said, hey, we're having a big sacrifice for our gods tonight. Come on over and party with us. And the men of Israel succumbed to this sin. They violated their holy separation as God's people. Many of them even bowed down to the pagan gods. They ate food sacrificed to the idols. They sinned egregiously with Moabite women, with Midianite women. And the result was that Israel forfeited God's protection. 24,000 of them were killed in a continual plague from God. And on one particular day, one of the men of Israel blatantly brought a Midianite woman back to his own family, right in front of Moses, right in front of the whole congregation of Israel. And you recall the story, the great nephew of Moses, Phinehas, the priest before the Lord, he saw this, he took a spear, and as the man was sinning with this woman in his tent, Phinehas plunged the spear through both of them at once, and the plague stopped. back to the church at Pergamum. Some in the church wanted the Christians to just get along with everyone. To be the good guys. And to do this, by the way, they needed to succumb to emperor worship. So they told the Roman officials how to break down the Christians. How do you break down the Christians? Entice them with immorality and a pleasure-oriented lifestyle of idolatry. Who are the Balaamites? The Balaamites are those who preach the word in public like Balaam, but in private they're drawn away from the Lord to the fleeting pleasures of this life, causing many Christians to stumble in sin by making sin acceptable. The Balaamites, the Nicolaitans, were similar. They publicly proclaimed Christ, but privately proclaimed freedom to do whatever you want. See also cultural Christianity. If many of these bad fruits we've taken time to describe, if there's someone here that some of those are attractive to you, that's a major danger sign. So what do we do? 
We listen to the Apostle John. He wrote in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the what? Truth. Let this be our prayer. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Yahweh. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have recounted all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches, I will muse upon your precepts and look upon your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. That's my prayer for all of you. Don't forget his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now having seen so many warnings in Scripture to remember the truth. We come now to the representation, the symbol of really the ultimate truth for the Christian and that is the death of Christ. Our Father, as we consider the amazing work on the cross that your dear Son accomplished. We ask you, God, to help us to take this with the sobriety, with the seriousness, the depth of understanding that is called for, that the God of the universe, the Son of God, stepped out of eternity into this muck and mire of this world and became a human being alongside us. And the one who has never sinned once took all the sins of all who would believe on him upon himself. He bore the wrath on our behalf. And so in these moments as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, may we do so both with the joy of our salvation but also with the seriousness that befits remembering the death of the best man who ever lived. Be with us now as we honor you with our worship. We pray in Christ's name, amen.